kids listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time it is that you choose to listen to this podcast. And I know I always say that, but I never cease to marvel at how I can record something and you can listen to it at any time, if you so choose to listen to it at all, uh, at any time of day. I, I just think that's one of the wonders of the podcast age and of the technological age. And I'm rambling. Anyway, hello, my name is Morris. Love that album, episode 72. If this is your first time listening, welcome on board. By the very title, you can probably surmise that the purpose of this podcast is to talk about albums that I love. Although occasionally, we've talked about albums that I thought were a sack of shit. But this is one of the majority times where I'm talking about something that I really, really dig. And hopefully, the two gentlemen, not one, we have two gentlemen on the other side of a Skype connection, also feel the same way. But if they don't, then it'll also make for a fascinating conversation to see why it is that uh, they don't love this album. And I'm talking about the crew of a, another podcast which if you've been listening to earlier episodes of love that album you know that i absolutely adore their show and one member of this crew has actually been on the podcast before uh, i'm talking about the podcast known as the stinking p-a-u-s-e so in case you try to look them up and look for p-a-w-s you won't find it stinking pause podcast charlie for the first time and scott for the second time welcome to love that album gentlemen thank you very much pleased well, to be here yeah great pleasure to be here once again mate it's um it's uh, really really wonderful to uh, and an honor to have you guys on as part of uh, love that album so um look i know that scott last time you were on and you were doing me uh, a bit of a service because you were talking about one of those rare albums that i wasn't that crazy about uh, attack of the great lantern by manson charlie this is your first time on your virgin territory so um give us a little bit of a background from your perspective as to um your love of films your love of music and why it was that you felt it was essential to get stinking paws together well um me and scott started working together over a couple of years ago now um and we quickly just seemed to click over films and even music actually and it was just nice to have a colleague that you sort of felt as if you were on the same wavelength as really i mean we, we have a mutual appreciation of quite a lot of films as i think comes across on the podcast mm -hmm. and within a couple of months we sort of decided that we were we were going to sort of find a way of channeling that enthusiasm and uh yeah, Scott suggested podcasting, and I was all for it. Mm. So I, I just actually quickly want to ask, a lot of the podcasts that you refer to in uh, Stinking Paws, and you've certainly built like up a really, really nice community, were a, a lot of those guys who um, you were already listening to? They came They came to us, actually, once we started broadcasting. Okay. Um, I, I don't think we were actually listening to any of these guys' podcasts until we were broadcasting ourselves. Oh, nice. Um, all the more impressive, then. Yeah, there's a there's a great little group called the Pod Pals, which is a combination of about eight or ten 
mainly British, but there's a few in Canada um, that you're aware of. Um, uh, Scott Clickers is a is a big mm. fan of the show. It's helped mm. us out many times. Uh, there's a few in America, and we, we of course uh, lump yourself in that group as well, sir. So. So, what was it? Was there anything in particular that you were listening to before you started podcasting? Personally, myself was um, mainly film-based and movie-based podcasts. Mm-hmm. Uh, not many music-based ones, if truth be told. Mm-hmm. And some of the main ones, like um, Mark Kermode on, on BBC, um, and some of the other mainstream ones that you know most people tend to listen to. Sure. But um, as we've said many times before, we're big fans of the indie podcasts. The you know. Same. The, the the bedroom guys that yep. you know just sit in their spare time and, and come across with some cracking stuff week after week. So Charlie, what stuff had you listened to, or had had you actually listened to podcasts before um, Scott had suggested that you do something together? I had done actually. Um, I think like a lot of people, certainly in England, my first experience of listening to podcasts was uh, the Ricky Gervais stuff. Love uh, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, with Carl Pilkington and, and Stephen Merchant because I was a massive fan of The Office and Extras and um, to get like a weekly burst of Gervais and Merchant was like an absolute joy for me and uh, they seem to be quite big in revolution- uh, revolutionising the podcast thing actually, certainly in this country. As well as the Gervais stuff, I was listening to a few football podcasts as well. Um, but funnily enough, not a lot of movie or music-based things. And it wasn't until I discovered a lot of the independent podcasts that I realised what a sort of treasure trove there was of that stuff. It's funny you mentioned Ricky Gervais. I've sort of long had a suspicion that there's that bit in um, The Stinking Paws where you're doing the uh, intro to the emails. <laughs> where you're going, oh, we got some emails. <laughs> <laughs> I, I seem to have this voice going off in the back of my head that says, Ooh, monkey news. From exactly, <laughs> yeah. I'm glad someone spotted the influence and didn't just think I've gone mental. No, 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 no. It was, I thought, Ooh, he, he must be a Ricky Gervais fan. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Either that either that, or just, you know, it, it's in the genetics. Every Britain speaks like a pepper pot. When, when, <laughs> when receiving emails. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, no, anyway, look, no, very much welcome to this show. We've been uh, talking about it for, uh, for quite a while and... As as we mentioned before, already Scott's already had his uh, love that album Cherry Crack. So uh, welcome to uh, your first time, Charlie. And it'll Thank be good, you. Be good to have you on as a tag team. Well, I, I don't think I've actually mentioned. Have I mentioned what it is that we're going to be talking about? You know, that's I'm getting slacker and slacker in my old age. So today, to uh, mutual agreement between Charlie and myself, we're um, going to be doing or, or speaking about Randy Newman's third studio album. And I say third studio album because really even that early he i think already had a live album which i haven't heard but uh, this is his third studio album called sail away and that's from 1972 so uh, what we'll do is we're going to cut to eric reanimator's uh, regular segment an album i love and he's talking about a duo who i never really actually sort of thought about anything more beyond the fact that they were a one-hit wonder i'm talking about denny zager and rick evans also known as zager and evans and you gentlemen would be uh, very very familiar with their big hit in the year 2525 but uh, yeah. eric makes the uh, very interesting and com- uh, convincing case that uh, they had some other great songs in their arsenal. They recorded two albums, uh, one called In the Year 2525 and the other one just called Zager and Evans. And so he's basically giving us a little bit of a rundown about their music on both of these albums. So uh, we'll go to Eric Reanimator's segment, An Album I Love, 
And then I'll be joined by Stinking Paws, P-A-U-S-E, after the break to uh, discuss Randy Newman's Sail Away. You're listening to episode 72 of Love That Album. We'll be back shortly. Take it away, Eric, the orchestra leader. I want two, I want two, three, four. Now it's time for an album I love with Eric Reanimator. I love ED. I want two, three. Eric the Reanimator. In the year twenty five, twenty five. If man is still alive, if woman can survive, they may find. In the year 35, 35, ain't gonna need to tell the truth, tell no lies. Everything you think, do, and say Is in the pill you took today In the year 45, 45 Ain't gonna need your teeth, won't need your eyes You won't find a thing to chew Nobody's gonna look at you In the year And that is the 1969 Big Hit by Zagger and Evans in the year 2525, which I'm sure most of you know. Sarah Granmater, this time around, I am going to be talking about Zagger and Evans and how they were maybe a one-hit wonder, but probably deserved a little bit better than that. And rather than talk about a single album, I'm going to talk about the CD, the one that I have, which is just called Zagger and Evans, and it has two albums on it. The original LPs were uh, 2525, and the other one was just called Zagger and Evans. I think the perfect example of the one-hit wonder where there is more to their music than just that one hit and it's well worth seeking out. Now they weren't breaking any great ground, but they were definitely combining a folk pop rock sound in a way that other bands in the 70s were, but with a little bit of a different twist. They definitely had kind of a socio-political science fiction-y bent to their music, and they definitely had a certain drive that many bands lack even today. I think it's that drive and that kind of dystopic, science fiction-y, psychedelic uh, feel that is really what draws me to their music, so let's take a listen. More than yesterday, more than weeks ago. Less than I will tomorrow 
Parents send their children to play grown-up games Like war, plastic hand grenades Atomic submarines Sherman tanks that drive around And lemonade is never seen Reginald Ludwig On buying 5,000 shares of APNB You're looking good in your shiny new car, Mr. Ludwig Sit tall so the whole wide world can see you Driving down the road to fame and fortune I always find it kind of interesting how so much of the subject matter of politics and socio-political, when I say that I mean the ideas behind having a strong social structure or military spending or any of those kind of big broader topics seem to be the same as they were 40 years ago while maybe the railing against certain personalities and a few of the ideas have changed. And I think that maybe that's what makes somebody like Zagger and Evans material still resonate today. We still are living with these fears and this kind of uh, postmodern, apocalyptic uh, fear of our society falling apart, and that's unfortunately become timeless. Uh, it's no longer the atomic threat or the Cold War; it's a new kind of ideological war that's going on. And their music addresses those fears. And while they may be a little more folky and a little more literary than somebody like Warren Zevon who would mine the same kind of material in a more pulpy and more um, more in-your-face kind of way. I think that they still have a place in kind of music that uh, still resonates with people. Now I think that if you are a fan of a band like The Left Bank, that kind of delicate Baroque pop music of the same era as Agar and Evans, that this is definitely uh, some albums, or I'm sorry, a CD worth checking out. I also think that if you happen to be at a record show or a record fair or your record store and you see one of these LPs in the in the bin, you might as well pick it up. So, Derek Reanimator, and we'll talk to you next time. And all of my friends I covered with chocolate ice cream and jelly Podcasts last over three hours. You have no concepts of time! Balaban Studios presents... A Stinking Paws. Take your stinking paws off me, you damn dirty ape! Starring Scotland. Yeah, be prepared for me to have a little bit to say about that one. And Charles. If Leslie Grantham can do it, then so can I. <laughs> Oh yeah. <laughs>
The Stinking Paws Movie Podcast, available on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Hotter than any uncurbed passion since last tango in Paris. There's the Facebook group, and you can follow us on Twitter, at Stinking Paws. You've never laughed more at sex, or a picture about it. And download all our episodes at thestinkingpaws.blogspot.co.uk. Thanks very much, Eric, for another wonderful album I love segment. And uh, Eric will be back next month uh, with both his album I love segment and also with his compilation series of uh, Love That Album Shows. If you haven't caught any of those, I strongly urge that you do. Uh, They make a nice uh, companion piece to the main show. They're half an hour. So, you know, if you're not interested in listening to uh, myself or whoever I'm with gabble on for an hour or hour and a half, then... um, Eric is very succinct, and he gets to the point, and you're still with a lot of information, a lot of great music recommendations, so uh, check out his compilation series of Love That Album episodes. But anyway, right now, we're on uh, Love That Album episode 72, and the subject for this episode is Randy Newman's third studio album called Sail Away from 1972, and to discuss this album with me is the Stinking Paws crew, Charlie and Scott. Thanks once again very much, gentlemen, for uh, electing to uh, talk a little bit of Randy Newman with me. Now, um, in a way, I'm, I'm sort of surprised that on Love That Album we actually hadn't um, had an episode featuring a Randy Newman album until now because he really has all the hallmarks that are part of the co-ops for, uh, for this particular show, you know, beautiful melodies, disguising often biting lyrics and great arrangements and I love storytellers as anyone who listens to this show knows about and there are a few other number of you know really great uh, songwriters that he could be comparable to in particular my hero Richard Thompson from a storyteller's perspective yet in some ways he's one of those songwriters who I guess I've been frightened of uh, tackling because He's not someone, strangely enough, who I've listened to a lot of in terms of his uh, album back album catalogue. I had a, a best of and I had Little Criminals, but it's only been in like the last two, three years that I've sort of gone and explored through the rest of his back catalogue. So uh, I, I was sort of a bit scared to not give him any justice. But I want to ask you, gentlemen, how far do you go back with uh, Randy Newman's back catalogue? So we'll start off with you, Charlie. Well, um... I think the first time I heard Randy Newman would have been at the age of around six or seven um, when I when I saw Toy Story at the cinema. Um, well, while I'd love to say that that was sort of like the beginning of an ever-present sort of relationship with his music, I'd be lying through my teeth, really. Um, <laughs> it, it wasn't until much later on in life, um, I think I heard Short People first because, as I understand, that's his, his biggest hit. Mm. Um, and then I actually heard Sail Away for the first time, and that's when I knew that I'd be a fan. 
So when you say like Salouette as an album or Salouette the title track? Well, obviously the title track was very powerful, but I don't see how anyone who enjoys the track can't be enticed by the rest of the album. So I sat there and listened to it all and I thought, I've, I've got to check out the rest of his catalogue, really. That was only in the last sort of two or three years myself. And Scott, how far do you go back with uh, with Randy? Well, I've got a bit of confession to make, unfortunately. Um, this is the first time in any great depth I've listened to any Randy Newman at all. Okay, well, look, uh, well I, I think that's fantastic. We've brought you on board for this, so um, so no, that's that's uh, that's terrific. I mean, had you had you um, listened to or at least enjoyed the the songs that had been playing in the uh, in the Pixar films? Yeah, I was aware of him obviously through the uh, through the Toy Story stuff, mm-hmm. um, and we used to do a segment on our show called Six Degrees of Separation, mm. um, where we'd introduce six clips of music, and Charlie did bring in Sail Away at one point. And that should have been my opportunity to actually go and have a listen to the guy, but um, it's a glaring omission from someone who considers himself a bit of a music lover that I've never actually listened to anything by Randy Newman until this week, to be honest now. Look, as they say in a lot of the film podcasts, you have a lifetime of watching film, and there are just some things that, you know, you, you can't watch everything, and really, truth be told, you can't listen to everything. And I was uh, I was speaking to um, another fellow, a fellow podcaster on uh, Friday, and said, oh, you know, we're going to be covering uh, Sail Away by Randy Newman on Love That Album this weekend, going to be recording it. And this is a fellow who I thought would have been hook, line, and sinker into Randy Newman, that sardonic sense of humour. And he went and told me, he said, you know what, uh, he's a bit same old, same old for me. I'm not really a fan. And, you know, you just can't always expect that people listen to everything or people are always going to be a fan of everything. So, um, you know, no, I wouldn't be embarrassed about it. I mean, look, as I said, I'd, I'd had for years the, the best of, and I'd had, you know, I heard, had like a tape, uh, an old, you know, tape of um, Little Criminals, which is where short people comes from. But really, it's only been in the last two, three years that I've sort of gotten into more of the back catalogue and, you know, for, I, I guess, you know, for someone like myself who loves lyrics and loves stories, you know, that might seem shameful, but I'm, I refuse to be embarrassed into anything. I'm just saying, well, better late than never. And uh, I'm glad that we've had this opportunity to uh, bring you around to the to the table, Scott. I'll be really, really interested to see what you think as we go. Now, as well as the Pixar stuff that he's famous for, I guess he's, he's really well known for as, you know, I mentioned the word sardonic before, and, and cynical and uh, a great storyteller as these regular sort of albums and when I say regular I mean as opposed to soundtrack album but there's a song on this album that was really possibly in a way my introduction to him but without really knowing who the songwriter was and I as a kid I was glued like lots of kids to the Muppet show and one of the songs that appears on this album was Simon Smith and his amazing dancing bear I may go out tomorrow if I can borrow a coat to wear I step out in style with my sincere smile And my dancing bear outrageous Alarming, courageous, charming Oh, who would think a boy and bear could be well accepted Everywhere it's just amazing how fair people can be The film clip's up there on YouTube And I posted it last night on the Love That Album Facebook page Where... Um, Fozzie gets roped in literally by uh, Scooter to be in his act. Uh, originally, was supposed to be a, a, the song Simon Smith and his amazing dancing dog, and Muppy the dog was going to be joining him. But uh, Muppy is having a uh, uh, having a tantrum 
in his dressing room for refusing for Kermit refusing to call the show the Muppy Show rather than the Muppet Show. So uh, he ropes in um, Fozzie to do Simon Smith's amazing dancing bear and. I loved, always loved that song, and you know, you'd be forgiven for thinking that Randy Newman was the guy who wrote these amazing little, cute, ditty songs for children before you sort of really knew what a what a black sense of humour he actually had. But that was my first uh, introduction to uh, Randy Newman, though, as I said, not really knowing it was Randy Newman, just my introduction to any of his uh, music. So I got to ask the two of you, being uh, being film fans. So, are you familiar with the work of the Newman family? Because you know, you'd be aware that Randy Newman comes from a long line of uh, film composers. Well, I don't know a lot of the work particularly, but um, I'm aware that you know he had something like three uncles that uh, were celebrated uh, composers in Hollywood films. And I think something like uh, four cousins that do it as well. Right, um, right, yep. And it just seems to me like it's just such a natural progression for him to have started focusing on films as he did from something like the mid-1980s was when he became really prolific at it. But I think even before he went into it, you can sort of hear that theatrical kind of um, focused element in his music anyway. Absolutely. Uh, look, just coming very quickly back to his um, the uncle's influence, you might not be able necessarily to quote uh, many of the films that uh, either uh, Alfred Newman or Lionel Newman may have written for, although maybe you are, but uh, one piece of music you've heard thousands and thousands of times because in my research, it turns out that Alfred Newman was the man who composed the music for the 20th Century Fox fanfare. Every time you watch a 20th Century Fox movie, the uh, Newman estate gets a few more um, pence or cents or dollars or pounds <laughs> in the shoebox. So, um, That's some legacy, is it? Yeah. Even if he'd done nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> the most famous piece of movie music on the planet, arguably. So, But yes, they, uh, it, it was certainly in the uh, Newman genes. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, we often sort of... Um, hear about uh, musicians who sort of think I want to go away from whatever the family business I want to find my own voice and you know certainly Randy Newman has found his own voice but by sort of doing film music as well as his own stuff he's sort of gone into the family business as it were no so actually one thing I was going to ask you gents was one of the songs that appears on the album and we haven't sort of started formally talking about the album yet but an early film score that um, it turns out that uh, Randy Newman composed for was a film, I think, from 1971 called Cold Turkey. I had never heard of it and have not been able to find the film, but I think it starred Dick Van Dyke, and the idea behind the film was a tobacco company goes and challenges a small village to give up smoking for 30 days, and if they do, they're going to give them some ridiculous amount of money, like so many millions of dollars or something like that. It's a bit of a black comedy, and he composed the music for this film, and in fact, one of the songs on Sail Away, he gives us all his love, which will get to shortly, appears in this film. And I'd love to know the context in which that song appears in the film. But is that a film that either of you had heard of before? I'd only heard it myself doing some research into this as well. 
Okay. Um, yeah, Dick Van Dyke's in the movie. I think it's Edward Everett Horton's last performance. Oh, really? And he must have been, yeah, he must have well been into his 90s by then. Um, yeah, it sounds quite a remarkable piece of um, cinema, to be honest. And, and as you say, Morris, it, it would have been intriguing to try and work out exactly how, how that particular song fits into the, to the screenplay itself. It's, it's, it's a film I, I wasn't aware of until I was, I was sort of listening to the album this week. Good evening. I'm Hardly Reasonable. And I'm Mike Wallace, and this is Tell the People. I mentioned before Richard Thompson as a comparison, which I always seem to do when it comes to songwriters who are storytellers, as a good comparison. But there's also, I guess, a bit of the black comedy touch, and you know, Richard Thompson's good at that. But probably, in a way, better comparison for mine would be Loudon Wainwright III. And I know that some people have even gone so far as to compare him to Tom Lehrer, both for their um, wicked sense of humour, but I guess as well, you know, like Tom Lehrer is strictly going for the funny bone and Loudon Wainwright is going for that little Mona Lisa smile, I think. And while all those songwriters, they seem to have something about the uh, the human condition, as it were. And I know that sounds like a very, very broad description, but they all songwriters really have something to say about how we as a society or how we as individuals behave, the ironies about the things that we do. I don't know. Is that is that something you see, or do you have another comparison? Or the the person that came to mind immediately when I listened to this album, obviously being the first time I'd heard it, was um, was Harry Nilsson. Okay. Uh, and and there are some some connections between the two guys because um, Nilsson recorded an album called Nilsson Sings Newman or something like that. I believe yeah, around yeah, about yeah, this. Yeah, t- I think I read about that. I haven't I haven't heard it, but um, that's something I should check out. Uh, yeah, and on that album was. Dayton, Ohio, 1903, which is one of the tracks on this album that um, Newman does his version of. And and I could see the comparisons there. Yeah, singer-songwriters of the time, um, not really familiar with Tom Newman's work, but um, I don't know, if you you imagine sort of the early 70s, there was a great proliferation of singer-songwriters, people like James Taylor. Right. um, Although his stuff was a bit more sort of lovey-dovey, wasn't it? There wasn't any sort of hard-hitting message to his stuff. Well, look, uh, people like, uh, uh, you know, I guess James Taylor and Carol King, you know, once she sort of broke out of the whole writing for other, uh, other singers type mode and started doing her level of albums. And yes, there are more albums in tapestry out there, but they were less about uh, telling stories. Whereas, you know, Newman is very much not only in the story camp, but as we'll discuss, very cinematic in his approach. But, you know, and Ladden Wainwright is also about telling these very small stories, but, you know, very, very funny moments, but also he could get very dark at, uh, at points. It's, that's why I made that comparison. Funnily enough, there's another songwriter who I'd make a comparison with who you might not naturally think about, but I think it's, I think it's a really good comparison, and that's Ray Davies of the Kinks. You know, Absolutely. Because yeah, Ray Davies writes about uh, the ordinary Britain, you know, and coming home for tea and doing ordinary things, and, uh, and Randy Newman, I, I guess, writes about... Maybe not about the ordinary American, and they, they're both looking... With a raised eyebrow, but yeah, they're, they're both. They're, neither of them. I would, you know, you wouldn't say Ray Davies was was anti-British, and you wouldn't say uh, Randy Newman was anti-American. But they both sing about people uh, that they know about uh, with a bit of a, a raised eyebrow. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I've actually made a note of that that um, on this album, but in his, his career in general, there were moments that are sort of weirdly reminiscent of the Kinks. And the Kinks as well as, as Newman, they sort of wrote and performed like these wonderful songs that were 
not just about people they know, but from the perspective of these sort of like quite eccentric characters that were so far removed from themselves. Mm. Um, and I hear particular songs by Randy Newman, and it, it definitely sounds like something that could have been performed by the Kinks on albums like Something Else mm. uh, in that mm. sort of mid to late 60s era. So you kind of mentioned earlier on, Charlie, about, I, I think it was you, Charlie, you mentioned about short people. Yeah, be, being particularly vertically challenged myself is there's some place to my heart. <laughs> you know what, it's it's an interesting thing about that song which doesn't appear on Sail Away, but I just sort of wanted to bring that up for a couple of minutes and because it illustrates something about the songwriting. I, mean, I don't know much about Randy Newman's history and I'm wondering if he'd gotten himself into trouble from people who um, didn't really get it. Or, I mean, so I, it's interesting, there's a 2008 interview which I read in a, with Mojo magazine, which I'll bring up in a minute. But, you know, in, in short, people, I've always sort of had trouble with, you know, the fact that there's that middle eight, bit where he has the backup singers singing uh short people are just the same as you and i and all men are brothers until the day we die i mean he's gone through the rest of the song singing you know short people are nothing short people got no reason to live and and they're stupid and they're useless and rah 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 and here we've got the middle eight saying just in case you didn't get it it's a joke all right it's a joke i don't have anything against short people and you sort of th- wonder if his uh if his lawyer or his manager said look you know you're going to be you're going to be crucified for this, you know. Just throw in something like a a, a a wink and a nod, just so people know that you're 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 having a bit of a laugh, or as um, Ricky Gervais would say, having a bit of a laugh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I agree with you. There's two things that really strike me about that song. Uh, firstly, you mentioned that mid late, and it feels like it wasn't just to to sort of um, placate people in terms of taste, but the fact that they got the... I think it was the Eagles that were actually singing backing vocals oh, really? on a few of the tracks on Little Criminals. Yeah, I think it's Glenn Frey or Don Henley singing that middle eight. And yeah. um, so it feels like, you know, we've got to make it even more accessible by getting sort of the, the great sort of LA band of the time on there. But also I'm amazed by that song because when you listen to some of Randy Newman's lyrics, there's a lot more to take umbrage at than short people. I actually think it's quite tame to some of the, some of the things that you uh, hear in his songs. Like, um, for example, the opening track on Good Old Boys, Rednecks. Yes, yes. You have some pretty serious use of uh, racial epithets there. And it doesn't yes. seem like he got any trouble for that because it wasn't a crossover hit. People like Neil Young who were wading in on the argument as well and, and things like that, I suppose. When when he released uh, Harvest, there was a song on there called Alabama and he was sort of, uh, you know, pointing a finger and I think even Leonard Skinner then replied to him and it all became a bit fractious. Yep, yep. There's a red moon rising on the Cuyahoga River Rolling into Cleveland to the lake. 
So, Sail Away was Randy Newman's third studio album, as I've already gone to mention. And to me, it's a meld of what he'd learnt from doing his uh, two previous records. You know, Randy Newman, the album, which was his first album, uh, makes use of a lot of orchestration. And 12 Songs is a more conventional band album. But to me, it's melodically a far more interesting album than his uh, opening album, eponymous album, I guess, if you want to call it that. He gets to the point melodically in far more memorable ways than he did the first time around. And he had songs like Mama Told Me Not To Come, which I think he might have originally written for, well, I don't know, it was Three Dog Night. I don't know, might be wrong on that, but um, write in and tell me if I'm wrong. And uh, on Sail Away, he's definitely gone and melded a lot more, uh, some of the orchestration type techniques from the first album with a lot more interesting melodies that he'd learnt from uh, recording on the uh, 12 Songs album. I don't know, have have uh, either of you uh, listened to um, those first couple of albums? I haven't, unfortunately, no, because most of this week has been taken up listening to this album again okay. and again and again because I was totally fascinated by this album. Um, and they're certainly on my Spotify list now to, to actually go back and listen to some of the previous and, and the subsequent albums that he's, he's produced. Mm. Um, if, they're, if they're as good as, as this album, I'm in for a bit of a treat as, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, look, I, I know that there are some people who sort of find that some of the later albums are not necessarily as great. And I remember years ago hearing on um, a, ra- a local radio program, there was... Uh, this um this guy who was a big Randy Newman nut and he went and um, played tracks for weeks from an album that Randy had gone and done. I don't remember what it was called. Oh, I actually no, it was called Randy Newman's Faust, and it was like a modern day retelling of the Faust story. And it, I, I got to say, it didn't do a thing for me. So he, even the great Randy Newman can be a bit patchy, but but certainly yeah, these some of these early albums they yeah all definitely worth your while. There's a few of them there. So Charlie had um. Had you heard those first couple of albums? Yeah, um, I think one of the reasons I like Sail Away so much is because I think it's a nice combination between those first two albums because you get all these sort of like grand arrangements mm. on the self-titled debut. And then uh, the second album is a lot sort of rootsier and band-based, I think. And yep. uh, by the time you get to Sail Away, like yourself, I haven't heard the live album, but by the time you get to Sail Away, um, you know, you just get this interesting combination between the two that really seems to hit the spot. And I think, regardless of whether you think Sail Away is his best work or not, I think it's it's quite uh, clear, certainly to me, that it's the best thing that he'd done so far by that point in his career. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's actually talk about some of the songs on this album. I've sort of gone and made the connection that a lot of these songs, even even if they're not paired consecutively, there's a lot of these songs that actually work in pairs, like call and response sort of things. And I sort of started thinking about them in terms of being like songs he'd written for an imaginary Broadway musical. And this is something I've done uh, about two or three times previously on Love That Album, where I've gone and said, well, these songs, they almost tell a story and they'd be good songs for a fictitious Broadway musical. The first pairing that I thought, yeah, these songs, they work really well together at maybe at opposite ends of a show would be um, Old Man and Mimo to My Son. Everyone has gone away Can you hear me? Can you hear me? No one cared enough to stay Can you hear me? Can you 
know that you can if you try. Alton has an unsentimental farewell from from a son to his dying father, and by unsentimental, I mean lyrically. So musically, with its piano and orchestral arrangement, you wonder how it would go in said Broadway musical. You know, we, um, I can almost imagine that the son of uh, his unconscious father's, you know, he's sitting at his unconscious father's bedside trying to convince himself not to get emotional. You get lines like, you know, the sun has left the sky, old man, the birds have flown away and no one's come to cry, old man, goodbye, old man, goodbye. And I think Randy Newman just knows how to have the lyric say one thing but let the music get to the real heart of the matter. The orchestral instrumentation is very heart-tugging in vintage film style music just yeah i don't know that's uh that's just one of those cases i've often gone and mentioned on the show i love it where the music says one thing and the lyric is saying in this case maybe not completely another but the music betrays the lyric the character singing the lyric and i think not the first time i'm going to mention this where randy newman really gets to the heart of the character he's really embodying himself in the character here. yeah personally you've mentioned um memo and my son Mm. As as a you know a good companion piece to old man where old man is he, the lyrics can be quite cruel but they're very truthful as well um, and he's and he's trying to comfort his dying father at the same time by giving him these these cold hard facts you know you're dying you're going but this is it you know I'm here there's nobody else here but or yeah memo to my son. What have you done to the mirror? What have you done? To can I go nowhere without you? Can I leave you alone anymore? Can I leave you alone anymore? The lyrics in that, it's, um, <laughs> he's sort of like berating his son in a way, you know, saying, what you've done, you know, what have you done with that mirror? I can't go anywhere without you. Um, but at the same time, he's offering advice as well. Um, there's a bit of anger in Memo to My Son, in, in the same as Old Man. There's the line, was it, uh, you think you're cute and special, but someday soon you'll see who the real boss is. As you said, the music behind it lightens the message in a way. I, the way how I sort of saw this song was from a, a sense of a father who has maybe like... Um, I know inferiority complex is too light a word, but he's trying to sort of show his son, look, you know, um, really, you'll see, I'm, I'm, pay attention to me. I think he's sort of scared that the son is going to grow up and go his own way and maybe devalue his father's contribution to his life. He says, I know you don't think much of me, but soon you'll understand. Wait till you learn how to talk. I'll show you how smart I am. But I think he's as much trying to convince himself, really, you know, I want you to love me. I want you to love me, which is something that every father does, you know. Uh, but um, he's not necessarily trusting his son to naturally see his father's good traits. It's, you know, they, we come back to that companion piece, old man, and he's at the end of his lifetime. And, you know, the son is saying, look, you know, old man, time for you to go. Time for you to leave this planet. Time for you to leave this life. But the music is saying, I really did appreciate you but I'm only talking to you in this way because verbally this is the relationship that we've had across our lifetime. And, uh, you know, the, the orchestration of old man you know, is the heart-tugging thing. And but as you've already gone and said, Scott, you know, the, the sort of the lighter, so, well, with rock instrumentation, but the lighter sort of touch of memo to my son. With, 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 you know, this nice little simple sort of piano riff 
is playing to, uh, I guess, maybe a little bit of a sense of playfulness, you know, a little bit of a puffing of the chest out. That's Anyway, that's the way how I see that. Yeah, I, th- I think um, Memo to My Son might be my favourite track on the album, actually. And okay. I, I see it as quite an affectionate song because I think there's a point during the song, you know, as you say, he starts off berating his, his boy, um, but there's a point of realisation. And when he repeats the line, um, can't I leave you alone anymore? I think he's sort of realising that these are actually the sort of times that he should cherish. And even though, you know, he's smashing up all the household fixtures, it kind of, it dawns on him that one day he's going to have to leave his son alone. So there is an element of melancholy there, but also an element of affection. And then, you know, he starts imparting this advice on his son about a quitter never wins, a winner never quits. Uh, when the <laughs> going gets tough, the tough get going. And I don't see that as a platitude at all. It sounds like quite a hackneyed and, and cliched phrase, but... I think he's looking forward to a point when his son's old enough for him to impart advice to. Yes. And I think um, because of the sort of like weighty and, and large-scale topics that you get on this album, it's nice that you've got a couple of tracks like Old Man, A Memo to My Son, that are intimate and only involve a small set of people rather than sort of America or the world at large. Mm. Well, actually, you, so you raise a good point. He's able to write those very small, very personal songs as well as do the more weighty societal at large type of topics for some of the other songs that we're uh, that we're going to get to so uh, no that's that's a good point that's actually something that i really admire in a great songwriter is someone who can get to the heart of the matter and write something that's equally important about one or two people as they can say about us as a, a nation or as a village or as a group of people attached to an ideology or um, attached to some sort of a political motivation or something like that. So he's, he's able to do both, and that's something I incredibly admire about Randy Newman and other songwriters of his ilk. All right, so we've gone already spoken about those two songs, which you've gone and mentioned there, you know, very small, very personal, and can be heartbreaking. But then there's also the cynical side of Randy Newman, which is, you know, in some ways, what he's, if you put away the Pixar songs, is really what pre-Pixar, what, when you thought of Randy Newman, you probably think more, oh, he's that cynical guy, he's that guy with that wicked sense of humour. So, let's talk about a couple of the uh, more cynical songs on the album, and let's start off with Political Science. No one likes us, I don't know why. We may not be perfect, but heaven knows we try But all around, even our old friends put us down Let's drop the big one and see what happens We give them money, but are they grateful? No, they're spiteful and they're hateful They don't respect us, so let's surprise them Another topic that Randy Newman's passionate about saying something is America and its place in the world. And he has this very keen observational eye, just as we mentioned before, like Ray Davies has for Britain. And one, I think political science is probably one of his most famous songs, a song possibly more relevant than ever and this is not a political podcast so i'm not going to turn this into a forum for american policy because once again we're this is a music podcast and the politics of this song could keep us here for hours but what makes this song unusual for the time is 
not so much the perspective of the song, but in an era where much political musical protest was done in the arena of rock, here we have Randy Newman giving us what's very much a Tin Pan Alley sort of ditty with a sense of humour driving the very serious message underneath. And that's actually something musical that we sort of hadn't already spoken about. Like, but, you know, there's Simon Smith and his amazing dancing bear, which has a uh, Tin Pan Alley flavour. And that's probably another thing where I'd make a good comparison to Ray Davies because he would have been raised on that music hall, British music hall tradition. And, you know, Randy Newman is obviously someone in the, the, the family connection of <coughs> orchestral music, but he has his tradition and he thinks, well, why am I going to rebel against it? I'm not going to knock the family tradition for rock because what I have is, you know, very rich heritage. And I just love the fact that he's gone and taken something topical like political science, which no one, I think, would have ever dared sing 20, 30 years beforehand. But he's gone and coupled it with a very rich tradition of American vaudeville. At least that's the impression I get with uh, political science. You can certainly see the influence of, of the pop standards of um, Tim Pan Alley in this. Broadway as well. There's, there's a real sort of musical underlying theme to this song as well. Mm. But the bit that struck me is with this song and, and most of the songs on this album, Randy Newman manages to tell, tell you a message and he does it within two minutes. This yes. song is perhaps <laughs> this song is perhaps the shortest song on the whole album. And there's so much information given within those three or four verses. And it's done succinctly and it's done so very well. And it's done, as I say, in, in the shortest possible time. Uh, look, that's, um, that's another thing that I sort of admire about him. We've already gone and spoken about how great he is at telling a story, but you've hit the nail on the head. He has so much power in one line I, i'm pretty sure in the tin pan alley tradition he's not like one of the uh, rock songwriters who say oh i just I, I just had this song come to me it floated in the air to me and i knocked up this song in five minutes i imagine that randy newman labored over every word he might have spent hours and hours you know to get that two and a half minute song or two minute song he spent days and days to get it just <laughs> right just to get his meaning across so for those of you who actually haven't heard Political Science yet, this is a song sung from the perspective of a very paranoid, patriotic American. And we have uh, a verse, here's a typical verse. No one likes us, I don't know why. We may not be perfect, but heaven knows we try. But all around, even our old friends put us down. Let's drop the big one and see what happens. Now, I mentioned Tom Lehrer before. And this, to me, is very much in the Tom Lehrer style of songwriting, where you'd get um, a song like Poisoning Pigeons in the Park, and it starts off romantically. Let's do a wonderful Sunday afternoon thing, and then the la and then we get into the first line of the next verse, and all is right on a Sunday afternoon when we're poisoning pigeons in the park. And you get <laughs> this, you get this verse. And he, you know, it starts off as one thing where he's thinking, oh, no one likes us. What's wrong? And then you get that clinker of a last line of the verse where he says, right, well, we're just going to drop a bomb on the rest of the world, uh, America. We're just going to, you know, all, all our former friends, uh, the Brits, the French, the Europeans, drop the nuclear bomb on all of them. And that'll serve them right for not trusting us. Uh, I'll tell you what that reminds me of, actually, Morris, um, in the Woodstock concert where Country Joe and the Fish sing, what are we fighting for? Oh, look, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm one of the few people who has not <laughs> had his way through Woodstock. There's my, there's my admission of shame. Uh, oh, it, it goes something like, uh, "What are we fighting for? Uh, don't ask me. I don't give a damn." Next stop is Vietnam. <laughs> um, 
and and it's and, and the the chorus that everybody sings is whoopee we're all gonna die you know it's, it's one of the the great sing-along songs from the woodstock concert and it reminded me of that so much but country joe and the fish they don't do it with a nice tin pan alley flair do they <laughs> no, it was nothing like Tim Panelli, that no. song. See, I mean, that, that's the thing about this song. You can almost imagine Randy Newman wearing one of those striped hats and the, and the candy canes and doing a soft shoe shuffle while, while, sing, while singing, let's drop the big one, let's see what happens. <laughs> Again, like Harry Nilsson, who would, who would appear on stage in a, in a striped blazer and a boater singing that type of song. Yes, that's that exactly. That's uh, that's very much. So, so does does Harry Nilsson do that? He, he does that song, does he? Or do he, he doesn't actually do that song, but that's the sort of song that Harry Nilsson, you know, was known for singing. You know, he'd have that sort of um, that soft shoe uh, guy with a cane on a stage type presence. You know, I'm, I'm pretty sure I've seen him performing songs in that manner before. It's pretty interesting to sort of see Randy Newman make that combination of that old world soft shoe shuffle and with very well i wouldn't say necessarily very modern concerns but at least having the guts to make those modern concerns you know whereas like you know 20 30 years before that would have been i imagine that would have been sacrilege you you probably wouldn't have got someone in mass entertainment singing lyrics like that i mean there might be you know someone on some obscure record some obscure blues or, or country record something you know, what we now call americana making an observation but someone who you know, was on a major label do a song like this i think it's quite incredible yeah i just want to ask you morris while we're on the subject of this song what did you think about his thoughts on australia in the song we'll save australia don't want to hurt no kangaroo Build an all-American amusement park there. They got surfing too. <laughs> Although I just had a sense of relief. I just had a sense of relief that we'd be spared, you know, uh, because uh, Australia. I, I'd sort of got this thing of um, uh, all the way with LBJ. You know, that's that's why uh, we'd be spared. So. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, but it's nothing to do with you guys. They don't want to hurt no kangaroo, I think, is the line. <laughs> <laughs> and you've got something. In America, you get food to eat. Won't have to run through the jungle and scuff up your feet. You just sing about Jesus and drink wine all day. It's great to be an American. The other song that sort of has that Americana, well, not Americana, but the, the sense of having something to say about America, is the title track from the album, Sail Away. This is a song which it's it's interesting in its approach because you know Randy Newman has gone and taken himself and put himself in the character of a slave trader and it's it's unusual because we always you know we know that basically we weren't getting slave traders going off to africa and saying look you know come on come on board the boat with us you know it's really come to america it's really really quite nice you know we just know that they went and hunted them down and took them to america but we get in sail away the perspective of what if a slave trader had gone to africa and said look come on the boat with us because you know in america you know you'll get food to eat and 
you know, you won't have to live this life here in Africa. You know, America is the greatest country in the world and come on board and, you know, you'll be treated really, really well. And I think it's, it's a really interesting perspective. It's a very brave move, actually, to open an album with a song that's that controversial. It was interestingly done. There's, there's some quite tough lyrics in there when you read between the lines, actually, as well. You'll just sing about Jesus and drink wine all day. It's great to be an American. Mm. You know, he's, he's, he's selling the promised land to them. And in reality, it was the complete opposite. And it's a very, very brave song, and I really enjoyed it. And it's a perfect opening to this. That's, this, that's what caught me. Um, it grabbed my attention from the beginning, being the opening track, and it just made me want to listen to the rest of the album. Mm-hmm. So in this interview that Randy Newman did a few years ago back in Mojo magazine, he said that the reason he was never a hit with the general public is because the public has to believe that he believes what he's singing and i don't think the public always gets what it is that he's they're singing they they, they don't realize that he's just embodying a character and he's writing from a character's perspective and we never sort of make that demand of our book writers or script writers but we seem to demand that of our songwriters if they're singing a song they have to believe if they're writing a song from a left-wing perspective then that's what they believe or if they're writing from a right-wing perspective that's what they believe or if they're saying something like i'm an asshole i'm an asshole then that's who they are they they are that villain or they are that super nice guy but they don't necessarily accept the fact that if a songwriter is taking on a character and we come back to that whole thing about short people that you know, Randy Newman sort of probably thought, oh, they're not going to get me again. I guess I better throw in that bit. Short people are just the same as you and I, and we're all brothers until the day we die. So on this whole thing about Sail Away, I mean, you say, Scott, that it was a brave song for him to write, but in reality, if certain people who were listening to it were a bit more attuned into the fact that it's just a character that he's writing about, it wouldn't have to be labelled as a brave song. Yeah, you've got to you've got to understand that his tongue was planted firmly in his cheek mm. when he was writing and singing this song. Definitely, yeah. And I, I think that's that's exactly right. Really, um, there's a documentary um, by a, a man called John Ronson. I think you can watch it online. It came out in 2003, mm-hmm. and he's sort of like a Randy Newman super fan. Okay. Um, it's called "I Am Unfortunately Randy Newman," and he's sort of interviewing him for about 25 minutes, and in his voiceover. Uh, John Ronson says just of his music in general and as to why he was never sort of a mainstream success before we write music for films, um, he said that they're sort of like puzzles to be deciphered and a lot of people, you know, they don't necessarily want to put in that effort with music and he says that he writes simple sounding songs about complicated things and the problem is that this isn't what most people want out of music. Mm. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for that because... um, you know, particularly in the 70s with the advent of things like disco, people just wanted music to dance to and enjoy. Randy Newman wasn't interested in that himself, and he wanted to make music that you had to sit there and decipher. Mm. But as you go and say as well that they are simple-sounding songs, and mm. the story, I think, as long as you accept that he's taking a character's perspective and he's not being necessarily autobiographical, that... Um, this, the message is there to be taken. You don't need to be deciphering something. We're not talking about some ancient scrolls that you need to be sort of like... You can do that for a long time if you wish, but I think he's basically saying, right, I'm doing a character. You can 
you can accept that. But you know, people once again, as you know, Randy himself had gone and said, they're not willing to take me on because that's um. Well, you know, as you go and say, yeah, they're not willing to do that analysis, but also because they they want it to be Randy Newman telling the story. They don't know that it's it's a character. And uh, what I, what I'd found out in you know, uh, an article that I'd seen online was that another song on this album, "Lonely at the Top." I've been around the world, had my pick of any girl. I'd be happy, but I'm not Everybody knows my name But it's just a crazy game Oh, it's lonely at the top Was he originally gave that to uh, Frank Sinatra to sing uh, and Frank Sinatra was his label boss, you know, because I think he was on Reprise Records. And Frank Sinatra, you know, just sort of laughed and said, <laughs> no, I don't think so. And then he offered it to Barbara Streisand and she said, <laughs> I don't think so. Um, but you know, it's unusual that, you know, neither of them had the guts to go and um, have a bit have a bit of a, a chuckle at themselves, you know. But there you go. So in in either case, you know, even even the songwriters, they, they probably thought, look, our audience are not going to get this. They're not. They Frank Sinatra is sort of going to think, I've got this image of cool, and my audience is not going to. They're going to take this fate at face value. This song, lonely at the top. Yeah, I mean, Randy Newman said that he sort of lost his sense of humour that he's known for over the sort of fallout of short people. And he said the thing that annoyed him about it was that, you know, as you've mentioned a couple of times, he put that caveat in there to say that this is a joke. And I think one of the quotes he used was, you know, it wasn't exactly James Joyce sort of stuff. It was a pretty it was a pretty basic message put across. Yep. But um, it's a shame, but I think it speaks to the wider thing of why he's, he's never been a household name for his actual music career. It's a strange thing that uh, is taken till Pixar. I mean, look, the thing was, I mean, even though I hadn't sort of followed him properly for years, but th- the name had always sort of come up, and he'd been on major labels for a long time, and probably, I guess, other, a whole bunch of singers had, in fact, embraced his songs, and you know, certainly he, he'd be earning a fair bit of coin alone from uh, songs like you, "You Can Leave Your Hat On," you know, Joe Cocker probably wouldn't have hurt and you know nine and a half weeks wouldn't have hurt wouldn't have hurt that really on um sail away you know, the version of there it's it's a much smaller song than uh, than it sort of turns out to be in joe cocker's hands later on baby take off the cold real slow baby take off the shoes yeah i take the shoes It's interesting that you mention um, You Can Leave Your Hat On though because the first time I ever heard that track was from watching um, the film The Full Monty and right. Tom, yep. Tom Jones did a cover version of it. Mm-hmm. Um, now, 
in Tom Jones' version, he sings it at a lot higher pitch, and he sort of transforms it into this sort of Vegas big show number. Whereas I think with the Randy Newman version, it's a lot more seedier. Um, you know, for me, before the point in the song where he asks the uh, other individual to turn out the lights, it's as if you can see the tobacco stains on the motel walls and the yeah. kind of the crushed cockroaches on the floor. Um, interesting that even in the music industry, people have kind of misinterpreted his songs when they've gone to cover them. Yes, it's like an entirely different character, I suppose. I mean, when Tom Jones is singing it, I get the sense that Tom Jones is the actual character, whereas Randy Newman sings it. In his own words, he says it's about like this meek sexual bully that he's created. Yep. So like, in a sense, there's it goes from a different type of narration almost when someone else covers it. You get the feeling that Tom Jones and, and Joe Cocker, when he covered it as well, they're taking it very literally. Yes. Um, Randy Newman does this very subtly. You, you don't get this this brass screaming lap dancing version of the song. Um, and it's not a love song, it's a lust song, for want of a better phrase. And he, he just does it so cleverly again, and, and just uh, the whole tempo of it is not is is not screaming out this this sexual song. It's it's just very very subtle. You know how I would love to have heard do a cover of this would be Tom Waits, but back in his early sort of jazz barfly days, I can just imagine in in his hands you know, it would it would have still some uh, the the. Uh, the low rent CD touch that um, that Randy Newman originally intended for it, but in Tom Waits' voice, you know, the, the guy who lived out at the Tropicana Motel in Los Angeles, it would just add a little something. You can leave your hat on. <laughs> I, I just think it, that it would work so incredibly well. Tom, if you're listening to this podcast, and I'm sure you are, uh, please <laughs> feel free to um, do a recording of this. I'd, I'd love to hear what you do with it. So there's one more big topic that is covered on this album, and there's no way that we can avoid it. You know, the the uh, what's it, the elephant in the room, and that's religion. But once again, a perspective. He takes two perspectives, uh, th- and that's partly why I wanted to, um, why I mentioned before about wanting to see this film, Cold Turkey, because until I sort of like read about this, I didn't know that the song, he gives us all his love appeared in this film cold turkey and I'd love to see the context that it's in because knowing full well that Randy Newman is an atheist and certainly the perspective that he writes on God's song and even writing in character you wouldn't be getting I'd be hard pressed to find someone who is a devout believer having the, the nerve or being interested enough to write a song like God's song that's what I love that's why I love mankind actually taking that perspective but I find it interesting that uh, this song he gives us all his love you're sort of waiting for the kicker 
you're waiting for oh yeah okay it, it's sung from the perspective of someone it's this very somber sort of very personal piano song sung from the perspective of someone who believes in the deity and he's this is not randy newman writing a song with a, a wink and a nod like isn't this a poor pathetic pitiful creature this is a song about someone who has a devout belief and he's not saying i believe in you know the miracle of the parting of the waters or the loaves and the fishes or anything like that it's just I believe that if I need someone to talk to, I can talk to God. And I believe if someone is going to give me comfort, it's going to be my deity. And he's not out there to mock him. It's just this personal song of belief. And then we get to the other end of the album. That's why I love mankind. King slew him. Seth knew not why. If the children of Israel supposed to multiply Why must any of the children die So he asked the Lord And the Lord said Man means nothing He means less to me the singer is God, you know, Randy Newman is putting himself in God's shoes and saying, you know, we're up here in heaven having a bit of a laugh. I've gone and done all these terrible things to you. I've gone and sent plagues and I've gone and sent famine and all these sorts of horrible things. And you still sing songs of praise. You know, you humankind are a pack of dickheads. I just love the dichotomy that he's able to take those two perspectives and write he, he's embodying himself as God, and he's embodying himself as someone who's devout. Uh, you know, it's two ends of the same Broadway musical. I just love that he's able to do that. And he, he, he's not making fun of the devout person. Um, he, he, it's not, there's not a nod and a wink, which would have been all too easy to do. It'd be like shooting fish in a barrel. That, you know, this character is singing something, and then he there's a line in there about, no, I believe, God, that if you want me to fly, I can fly, and I can, I'll be saved, and I'll be spared. And he doesn't do that. He's not ridiculing him. But that's why I want to see this film, Cold Turkey, because maybe in the context of the film, where that song originally comes from, uh, maybe it is mocking. I don't know. But just taking it in context of this album, I like the fact that he's not taking the piss out of anyone in that song. Yeah, I think um, even though... He's an atheist, I think, even in the context of the final track, God's Song. It's not really him debating the existence of God. It's, all right, if God does exist, I'm going to point the finger at those who believe and ask them, is he a benevolent God, really? Um, it's that thing of, you know, what sort of God would, uh, to sort of paraphrase the lyrics, burn down your cities and take your children uh, because at the end of the song, God concludes that you all must be crazy to put your faith in me. Mm. And, you know, when you get a line like that, it's not difficult to see where Randy Newman stands on the matter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, look, I think other songwriters have also gone and tackled the same subject matter. We had on the show um, many episodes ago a, a Melbourne singer-songwriter called uh, Deborah Conway. And she'd gone and put out an album uh, with her husband, Willie Ziggier, exploring their Jewish heritage and they're both you know admitted atheists and yet a lot of the songs on the album sort of explore the Jewish heritage from a very studied perspective and it wasn't mocking uh, which you know which was wonderful but they did do a song called God and it took the same sort of um, I'm not the benevolent God I'm the angry merciless 
god and it, i'd be very interested i would love to know whether deborah conway was a fan of this song i mean it's quite um it's a very melancholic song it, it finishes the album on a on a very somber note but then i suppose that's the spirit with which a lot of the album's written in because you know he's writing about these as we've mentioned these big subjects he's talking about theology here he talks mm. about slavery poverty he even goes into the environment a couple of times really doesn't he so yeah i'm not surprised to see the album end in this way you know it was never going to be a kind of um shits and giggles sort of thing really <laughs> even though it's very funny at points well e ending the album with simon smith and his amazing dancing bear hey i know that we've gone and had some really serious stuff but we're going to answer uh, we're going to end the album with a all singing all dancing tin pan alley number for you <laughs> and here's one for the kids you know yeah you're right he was never going to end that way this is you know who randy newman is and you know scott you were mentioning about um, randy newman being a fairly brave soul to open up the album with sail away but it's equally brave uh, from a, a musical perspective, certainly to end an album on such a very dour note. Yeah, the, the the version that I bought, I bought the CD off Amazon last week. Okay. Specific to listen to this, but I bought the the reissue from about two thousand and two, and there's bonus tracks on the okay. end. So my version of the album actually ends with a different version of Sail Away, believe it or not. So it starts and ends <laughs> yeah. with the okay. same song. I haven't heard those bonus so, tracks. What are they like? Are they um, sort of like piano uh, demos or, or, or rock uh, band? How, how's, it, how's it sound? There's a very good version of Dayton, Ohio, 1903. Um, there's a demo version of You Can Leave Your Hat On and the early version of Sail Away, which ends the whole thing. But my favourite track on the whole album is one of these extra tracks, and you don't hear it in the main body of the album. It's a song called Let It Shine. Go back and try and find it, Morris, mate, because it's, it's an interesting addition to the whole album, and I don't know where they could have included it in the album at any point, but it is a really great track. So the, um, um, what, what's it thematically like? What's, uh, what's it cover? Is it just is it a story? What, tell us a bit about this song. Let It Shine, I believe he wrote for a pilot for a TV show that was never broadcast. So it's got that pop element of sort of like this catchy tune that's designed specifically for a TV audience. But it is a catchy pop song. And apart from Simon Smith and his amazing dancing bear, there are no real sort of catchy pop songs on this album at all. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting. I'll say there's one, two, three, there's five extra tracks okay. on the bonus on the bonus on the bonus album. It's worth worth listening to. Uh, have you heard the um, early version of Sail Away, Morris? No, I have not. No. It's it's really good. It's great actually. It's it's the one that, that Scott's got and. Um, you know, it's not even a demo, it's just an earlier recorded of it, and it, the arrangement isn't quite as grand, but what you notice when you listen to it is that is kind of the song that he made Louisiana 1927 out of on okay. uh, the following album. So it's worth a listen just to see how that melody evolved, really. Oh, okay. So, so it's melodically different to the version that appears on, on Sail Away, the main album. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. 
I love hearing how songs develop and how songs change. You know, my son Max was asking me yesterday, he said, oh, do you like hearing demos of songs? I said, absolutely. You know, uh, most music nuts love to hear the evolution of, um, of uh, famous songs. So, uh, so yeah, I'll, I'll yeah, definitely love to search that one out for sure. I've just got the uh, ordinary version of the album without the, uh, without the bonus tracks, but. Uh, so, any final thoughts, gentlemen? I, I, so, one question I guess I did want to pose there, because you you were saying, Scott, about this song, Let It Shine, you're not sure how it would have fitted onto the album. And I mean, we've been talking about individual songs and, and pairings of songs. Does this work as a body of work, or does it is it just a, uh, a group of very well-written individual songs that he's just gone and put together? Do you think this works as an album? Well, I wasn't certainly pairing any particular tracks together while I was listening to it. And, and believe me, I've been listening to this constantly over the last seven days. This <laughs> and the mark of a good album for me is one that I can listen to from track one to track 10 without skipping or, or switching off or, or losing interest in. And I was finding interest in every single track on this album. Mm. There was nothing that was making me think, oh, that's a duff track or, or that well, that's not particularly interesting. Every single, they, they didn't necessarily flow into one another, but it just made a great album. Um, it would have been interesting for me to have the vinyl actually to see how side one and side two would have compared. But mm, mm. listening to it on a CD, you, you don't get that luxury, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Charlie, do you think it works as a body of work or just as a good collection of songs? Or is, does it even matter? I think it's a, a combination of the two things in a weird way because you've just about every song other than um, Old Man. Memo to my son and maybe um, last night I had a dream. They don't feel personal to Randy Newman. So the other songs, they all seem to have a particular topic and a bit of a political or social subtext to them. Mm. Uh, but even then, they're about different things. So it is more a cocktail of, of those kind of tracks. But most of the material on here is commenting on society in a particular way. And I think it... I think it sort of fits together well because of that. I think that probably is a good point where we can conclude this discussion of uh, Randy Newman's Sail Away. So that's, um, I think, you know, if you haven't heard the album out there, that's, I think, safe to say, thumbs up from all of us. An album we'd certainly recommend that you chase out on whatever format, vinyl, CD, MP3, 8-track, cassette, whatever it is, you know, uh, cylinder roll for piano, whatever it is. It's all good. Any chance you get to listen to it. I should probably just get a little bit of housekeeping out of the way before we formally close up. And if uh, you've enjoyed listening to um, this episode, I would heartily hope that you go back into the back catalogue, search out some older episodes of Love That Album. If this has been your first time, you can download the show from lovethatalbum.blogspot.com or lovethatalbum.podbean.com or just search for Love That Album in iTunes. You've obviously gone and searched it out through one of those medium, otherwise you wouldn't be listening to me right now. But if you uh, want to find another medium because you like diversity, then you go with uh, three possible methods. Uh, if you've enjoyed the show, please consider giving uh, it either a rating on iTunes, or even if you don't want to do that, just recommend it to a friend. I'd love to have uh, some more people tune in and come back and say, that album's a sack of shit, this is an album I love, and always want to have more people come and talk on the program. So... Please recommend it to your friends. Have the word go around. Uh, join the Facebook group. It's facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash love that album. Uh, so I think that's all the housekeeping taken care of. 
So the question is now, Charlie and Scott, if um, any of the listeners to this show have uh, been listening and thought, I like their perspective, I've not heard this stinking pause of which they speak. How can they find <laughs> Stinking Pause the podcast? Yeah, we're available on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. We've also got a Facebook group, and for the life of me, I can't remember the actual web address of it, but we're there on Facebook and Twitter at Stinking Pause. But the main outlet that you'll find us, it's got all our episodes. I think we're up to episode 42 at the moment, is the website, which is at stinkingpause.com. And I should reiterate, that's P-A-U-S-E, Stinking Pause. It is in- it is indeed. Yeah. Oh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want people to say, "Oh, I can't find that." Well, I'm not going to bother. No. So now you've you've got no excuse. And as I've mentioned before on the show, I absolutely love. I'm, I don't want to sound like I'm pissing in your pockets, guys, but um, you've given me a lot of wonderful <laughs> entertainment. Uh, I just love hearing your. It, it sounds like a good fireside chat, and you know, hearing what you guys have to say about these films, and and you have wonderful, entertaining people come on board, like Jim from Swanscombe, and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he always a bit Can we just thank you, Morris, as well, actually, while we're here, for your fantastic contribution to the Godfather episode last week as well. So that was really greatly appreciated. Thank oh, you. Look, I've got to say, listening to uh, some of the more enlightened contributions to the show, <laughs> I was thinking, you know, what have I gone and spoken about? Holy shit, you know, I've just gone, oh, well, I remember the first time I watched this film. And, and we've got people there coming up with really such... Uh, interesting insights into the film. I thought, oh, well, they don't want insights. I'm just going to say, well, I remember watching it, and, geez, isn't the music good? But, you know, I, I thought, I have no place here. The, you know, had some really, really That's great just what we wanted, mate. That was absolutely fantastic. Thank you. So, yes, yeah, so look, um, basically, if you're listening out there, you want to know, where do I start? Do I go from episode one? Well, that's one way of doing it. But um, their most recent episodes, um, Scott and Charlie, just covered their 100th film and sometimes they do three films in one episode sometimes they do one film in in an episode so it's not like a hundredth episode or a 50th episode it's just their 100th film and it's it's a cracker of an episode because they had a lot of contributions from uh their podcasting buddies of which i'm honored to be one and they um interspersed in amongst their own discussion about the godfather they interspersed contributions mp3 emailed contributions from a whole bunch of other podcasts that they'll listen to, including our mutual wonderful friend Scott Clickers over at Married with Clickers. Uh, and it just, I thought it made for a really well put together show, a few minutes of yourself and then a few minutes of someone else talking about a topic that you might have just spoken about or you were just about to speak about. So it was edited really well. I, I think, Scott, you do most of the editing on the show. Is, is that right? Well, I'm not going to take the credit for all of it. Well, Charlie, <laughs> well, well, well you, you, whoever did it, or both of you did it, you did a marvellous <laughs> job. So, no, that's, um, I heartily recommend that uh, if, if you, you know, want to dip your toe into the stinking paws waters, then start off with that one, uh, the most recent episode, at least from the time of this recording, uh, The Godfather. So, no, job well done, chaps. Really, really well done. Uh, so, so yeah, so anyway, so you've got to mention how the uh, listenership of Love That Album can find your uh, your shows, and once again, I heartily recommend that they do. So next time on Love That Album uh, for the uh, regular episodes, not the um, the episodes with Eric Reanimator, because I'm not sure what he's got planned, but for the regular episodes of Love That Album, episode 73, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're not going to talk about one album, but I've invited... My very, very good friends, Michael Persh, 
the host of Sitting in a Bar in Adelaide podcast. And just a couple of days ago, also included into that group, uh, my good friend and workmate Dave Blom. Now, Scott, you're familiar with Dave Blom having uh, appeared yes, yes, on yes, the Manson episode. Dave. So uh, <laughs> the three of us are going to um, basically emulate what um, Eric Reanimated does with his album I Love segment. We've figured that there's a whole bunch of albums out there that we weren't necessarily going to talk about for like an hour or something like that, but we felt still warranted um, the uh, Love It album audience out there to be aware of, and uh, all being all being uh, Australian music lovers. Uh, we decided what we're going to do is we're each going to take three albums, three Australian albums. They could be new, they could be vintage, that maybe the non-Australian listening audience need to be aware of. Of course, though, mind you, if you are Australian and you're listening to this show, hopefully we might bring something to the plate that you're not aware of, or even if you are aware of it, have a listen to what we have to say about it. So it's basically going to be a, a whole bunch of albums that we love, Australian albums, and um, once again, could be new, could be vintage, and uh, but no album will be discussed for more than you know about seven or eight minutes. So um, you get sick of one particular album, hang on, we'll be on to the next. So it'll be a bit of a roundtable thing, and I'm very immensely looking forward to that. And I've asked Eric Reanimator to chime in on a particular classic Australian album that uh, I know he's taken to. I don't know, we'll, we'll wait and see whether he follows up with that or not. He might come up with a surprise. But um, anyway, so that's in March, March of 2015. will be uh, episode 73 of Love That Album. Hope you can tune in for that. Hope you've enjoyed this episode with the Stinking Paws guys. Please tell your friends that we exist and please tell your friends that Stinking Paws exist. Uh, so uh, until next time, thanks once again, Charlie and Scott, for uh, contributing to this episode. Really, really much appreciate it. had a lot of fun having you on. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Maurice. Always a pleasure, sir. We'll speak to you soon. Cheers. Yes, I was something less than a resounding success at Randy Newman. Randy had been kind, but I floundered like I didn't have a clue, man. Bad love city record, if you haven't got it yet, boy, you should do, man. The following week we revoiced my bits. Steve did wonders with lots of edits Randy and me we sounded like old mates everyone agreed that it turned out great interviewing Randy Newman it's NFL draft season and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.